Hello, literacy leaders and champions. Welcome to Literacy Talks, a podcast series from Reading Horizons, dedicated to exploring the ideas, trends, insights, and practical issues that will help us all improve our professional practice, knowledge, and confidence in teaching reading. Our host is Stacy Hurst, professor at Southern Utah University and chief academic advisor at Reading Horizons, where reading momentum begins. Joining Stacy are Donnell Pons, a recognized expert in literacy and special education, and Lindsay Kemeny, an author, speaker, and a first grade elementary reading teacher. Today's episode is part three of our four-part mini-series as we unpack Ending the Reading Wars, Reading Acquisition from Novice to Expert by Castles, Rassel, and Nation. Today's episode takes an in-depth look at teaching students to become skilled word readers. Our hosts discuss understanding the role of phonics and helping children connect spelling and meaning. They also explore implications for the classroom. Every teacher will discover new ways to think about foundational literacy instruction and its many components. It's complex, fascinating, and important information to know. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Literacy Talks. My name is Stacy Hurst. I'm the host, and I am joined by my awesome co-hosts, Donnell Pons and Lindsay Kemeny. And as you know, if you've been listening to our podcast episodes in order, we are in the midst of a multi-part discussion about the text um, titled Ending the Reading Wars, Reading Acquisition from Novice to Expert by the researchers Anne Castles, Kathleen Rassel, and Kate Nation. We like to call Castle Rassel and Nation just because Castle and Rassel rhyme. It just flows, doesn't it, guys? So last time we talked about cracking the alphabetic code. And if you have the article downloaded and you're following along, today we will be discussing the second section titled Becoming a Skilled Word Reader, pages 16 through 26. There's a lot of really good information in here and some really great questions too. So before we dive in to specifics, we did end the last episode by saying this one, you can sum it up by saying experience matters, right? With text. Um, But I want to make sure that we address the things that you guys most want to talk about. So maybe we could start a little differently this time. And I will ask you what stood out to you, what you, as you read this, you most wanted to talk about. Lindsay, let's start with you. Okay. Well, I highlighted lots of things. We could start with a quote in the the very beginning section, the very beginning of the second section, I should say. It's, it's kind of talking about why they think that there hasn't been a resolution to the reading wars. It's been this relative lack of attention to aspects of reading acquisition that go beyond alphabetic decoding, which give rise to arguments that reading is more than phonics. This is a statement of the obvious to any reading scientist, and I would add anyone who has, you know, a a pretty good knowledge of the science of reading. Yet, such statements are often used in public debate to undermine the case for the use of phonics in the initial stages of learning to read. We see this. I mean, this was in 2018. We see this, like, all the time now. This is, like, the favorite straw man argument of those um, that are kind of against the science of reading. And 
it, you know, I love that it said it's obvious. It's obvious to all of us. Of course, there's more that go into this. Yeah, I highlighted the same quote, and the the sentence right before that says the acquisition of phonic knowledge because they're talking about the last section, right? is by no means all there is to learning to read, even at a single word level. And then they do state that, in our view, the impediments to translation of research into teaching practice. And I think that's uh, one thing I love about this article and the way it's designed, and especially this section, you get a lot of content about the research behind what we're talking about, but then they also um, address how to how to apply it in your instruction in ways that will help students. But I loved that they called that out too. And I see that on social media all the time that people are saying, you know, phonics is at the heart of structured literacy. It's definitely part of it, but it is not all. So I appreciated that too. Donnell, um, what are your thoughts on that or what you want to make sure we have time to discuss? Yeah, I noticed that I had the same section highlighted too, because it also stood out to me as well. But something that was kind of interesting, just to those who are listening and have been following along, and today as I went through this section, I pictured myself as the character of Owl from Winnie the Pooh. And if anybody knows Owl from Winnie the Pooh, Owl thinks he knows a lot and uses very big words and is trying to teach everybody. This section's tough. I mean, I kind of pictured Owl talking to me through this section. (laughs) And so, you know... I say, settle down, take a deep breath, and rereading <laughs> is my friend. And that's what I did many times in this section, but it's well worth it because they are tackling some some really big ideas here, right? Some things that are fundamental to that huge thing between beginning reading and becoming the expert reader. And that's a big space, a very big, interesting space where a lot of things wrong can happen, right? And I would add, if you're a busy teacher, and you're struggling to get through this, um, it's okay to right now skip to the implications for the classroom and at least read that section. And you can return to these anytime. But really, you know, because it is like we were saying, this is dense, it can get a little hard to get through, but you can skip to those implications for now and come back to the others when you have more time or even more background knowledge on the topic. Yeah. And I don't know if we used the word dense after we started recording, but we certainly did before. And I admitted <laughs> that even though I utilize this in my classes, I kind of give a very general overview to this section because it is very uh, cognitively demanding. But we, yeah, Donna, go ahead. With that though, Stacy, what's interesting is, is that this is the place where I'd like to have more conversations mm-hmm. because this really is the secret sauce or the space where I get a student to such a place, but we never seem to get beyond, or it seems like we get to the hurdle and we can't get over the hurdle. And this is really interesting space to talk about. Yeah. And you know, I, I liked it too, because I do like identifying areas that I can learn more about. I like learning new things and solidifying and refining my knowledge. And this is definitely um, going to be a part of this text that I revisit. I think a central idea to the first parts of this section is that skilled readers can generalize. And I think as we say that, you guys are both nodding your heads. I have seen that with students that I've worked with that maybe take a minute to become fluent. And the other thing that I drew out of this repeatedly, this process happens over time. 
and over years in the case of English, right? So we need to keep that in mind as well. But I've noticed that with my students who um, struggle maybe or don't get it as quickly as others is that they can read a word in one context and totally get it and see it again. And it's like they've never seen it before. The other piece that I find important to that, Stacy, is to back up even a little bit further, and it reminds us that even skilled adult readers continue to use alphabetic decoding and phonological processes as a matter of routine. So again, that goes back to what we know about, well, what do struggling readers who are older need? Well, they need those skill sets too, right? So don't skip them, provide them. And then it continues on with what you said. The most obvious evidence of this is that skilled readers can generalize, as you were saying. They can read not only words with which they are highly familiar, but also new words that they have never seen before, or indeed non-words. And they give some examples. It was really interesting. So Lindsay, what were you thinking as we were talking about this um, concept? Not much to add to that. I highlighted a lot of the same things. They talk a lot about computational models which again is something to look into. There's a table that um, does a good job of kind of synthesizing those, but I liked that they have, no matter the model, they have two things in common. One, that cognitively, we need to translate a word spelling into sound and then to meaning. And then one that um, allows us to gain access to meaning directly from the spelling. So again, that orthography becomes central to um, automatic reading. Any thoughts about that direct access to meaning? Well, I liked how they defined that with the orthographic learning, um, where they said it's it's mapping their spellings directly to their meanings without recourse to decoding, a process we have referred to orthographic learning. It, it just said, not that, you know, in order for that to happen, they have decoded it previously, right? So it's not saying we're skipping that step. That step has happened, but now they're so familiar with it that they access the meaning of the word. Yeah, I like that they pointed out there too, and I'm on page 19, phonological processes still exert an influence on reading, but they do so in a less overt way. So it really is kind of what takes center stage when you're um, reading a word. So it also says that in even in children's silent reading, those phonological processes are at play. So we can't, in, in our practice, we can't overestimate probably the importance of that early on. And then Lindsay, as you mentioned, um, they discuss orthographic learning and I had never, a, we all have heard orthographic mapping. For me, the phrase orthographic learning was a little bit novel, right? They say it's an umbrella term that encompasses both the acquisition of word-specific knowledge required to access a particular word's meaning from print and also the accumulation of more general knowledge about orthographic regularities within the writing system. So there we have referring again to experience and time with text. I thought that was interesting. And then um, it kind of transfers into the self-teaching hypothesis. And I know we've talked about that amongst the three of us before. Anything in this section that was a little bit refining to the knowledge you already have of the self-teaching hypothesis? Donnell, you're really good at um, synthesizing definitions. So how would you define the self-teaching hypothesis? 
You know, one thing that came to mind this time around when I was reading it, and I highlighted it, and then I wrote in the margins, Stanislaus Dehaene, in his book about how we learn, what he said about human the human brain having that ability to learn from one trial and how important and significant that is. That's why he's not too wasn't too worried about machine learning. I wonder if that same conversation would happen mm. today if he'd be worried or not. But that's really important. That was interesting. It popped into my head here with the self teaching hypothesis. Yeah, that you need to have data. Yep. Or that experience won't really get you where you need to go, right? So mm-hmm. data and then over time. One thing I loved um, also on page 19, he uses this term by requiring the child. He's talking about you need to have a lot of experience with text, essentially. So he says, by requiring the child to engage in the, here is my favorite term, effortful process of translating print to sound and therefore to focus on the letters in a word and their sequence, the act of decoding also provides an opportunity to acquire orthographic knowledge. So that phrase, effortful process of translating print to sound, really helped me to think about, and then he talks about repeated exposure and they're able to self-teach through their independent reading. So when we're talking about effortful processes, I have seen in practice sometimes when teachers are presenting decodable texts to a student and they read it out loud to them first. I think that robs that child or the student of that effortful process. I know we've had conversations about that, but when you hear the phrase effortful process, what do you guys think about? I feel like it's that necessary productive struggle that has to happen in order for these students, you know, for this orthographic learning to occur. And I love just the self-teaching hypothesis is so interesting to me. And it's important to realize that they need, you know, it it says in this article that the self-teaching hypothesis has alphabetic decoding at its core, you know, and the students need to have been taught enough of the code where then this kicks in and, and takes place. And maybe sometimes certain philosophies of reading have thought that students will teach them themselves from the beginning. Like I think that it, more and more they need, they need that base. They need to be explicitly taught and then you'll see things kick in. And I think that's really exciting as a first grade teacher, because I felt like I really, I was seeing that um, look, now we're transitioning out of these decodables. I'm giving them harder texts. It might have some unusual spellings that I haven't taught yet. And the students are picking that up and doing great and reading with it. Others needed more time um, before they were ready. And so it's just interesting that the self-teaching hypothesis that, you know, it's kind of different for each child. Yeah. I loved that um, he pointed that out. And there is on page 20, this, this concept too. At any particular point in time, a child may be reading some words slowly and with great effort. And you were talking about that, Lindsay, when your students were ready for texts that maybe had words that had patterns you hadn't taught yet, while recognizing and understanding other words rapidly and efficiently with less reliance on that alphabetic decoding. And the authors of this paper say that they posit that that self-teaching hypothesis is actually what takes a student from novice to an expert reader. And Stacey, I thought something interesting too that is is within the wording of how they say things. And I think it's important. The wording was so important. 
is when they talk about the fact that once a student has been given these uh, the information, as we say, they have to have the information to even begin the process. This knowledge is then available on future encounters with the word. So that's that piece, Lindsay, you've been talking about as well. You have to make sure that the student has enough of the information, the knowledge to then utilize it on those encounters with something that may be a stretch beyond a little bit beyond what you've been teaching them before. So vital and important. And as you say, this may look different for students in the room. You may have five that look rather similar. You may have four that don't and, and, and so on. And teachers, we as teachers, we need to be confident in the way that we teach, confident in the materials that we have in order to meet those needs. Because as we've always said all the way along and everybody knows, your students come with different backgrounds and prepared in different ways. You articulated that Perfectly, Donnell. <laughs> you had the words that I couldn't. That was great how you explained that. Confident and flexible, right? Because mm-hmm. there are still some things we don't know. I wish it were as precise that the research said to us the student will need exactly this many exposures to a pattern before they get it. But we still don't know that, right? And they did say um, that exposure is the key to that transition to self-teaching and orthographic learning occurs um, as a function of alphabetic decoding together with exposure to novel words in print. So there are some things we still don't know that um, the question they ask are all types of exposure equally valuable. And that kind of leads to the next section, (laughs) 2.2.2. They're talking about um, Perfetti's work of lexical quality. This is where that word flexibility comes up again as well. Um, They define lexical quality as the extent to which a stored mental representation of a word specifies its form and meaning in a way that is both precise and flexible. And when he talks about precision, as I understand it, he's talking about the exact spelling of a word. Um, And flexibility refers to the meaning of the word and how it can be used in different contexts. Any thoughts as you read that section? I don't know. It's the stuff we know, I think. It's, It's saying, you know, when the lexical quality is low, some of the reader's limited cognitive resources must be directed to the more basic task of word recognition and comprehension is compromised as a result. So I think we talk about that a lot where this stuff needs to be automatic so that students can be thinking about comprehension and have the mental capacity to be thinking about that and not thinking about the decoding. And I think it's interesting because (laughs) um, a lot of things can indicate to you as the educator exactly what the lexical quality is for a student, right? So just even in the way that a student interprets and approaches a text and their comfort with it with a text. And they even said you could get this off of a few sentences, well-chosen sentences even, and observing how a student responds and and what their, you know, understanding is of things. And so I thought this was really interesting here. I, I loved uh, just again, diving back in and thinking about lexical quality, what that might look like. How does a student demonstrate their level of lexical quality? That was really interesting. Yeah. And they, he does emphasize, well, Perfetti's work emphasizes um, that again, just the more a student knows about a word, the more likely they are to get it in their long-term memory. So we're talking about phonology, orthography, morphology, etymology, 
And he talks about having those literacy experiences over time. He also mentions that in his research. And again, the authors of this paper continue to mention that. So I think we just can't put too fine a point on that. And that comes to those experiences in text. They're so vital and so important because as I give the one example of the word jam, you know, that could be mm-hmm. on bread, you know, on a piece of toast for breakfast, but it could also be being in a bind. And you're not going to have those experiences to get that lexical quality with the word that might have more than one meaning. And that's just one, you know, three sound word. And it's interesting to think about with your students, the, and again, this is that Matthew effect too, that we've talked about. The more that you challenge your struggle and you have challenges, the less you want to expose yourself to something that's hard and difficult and doesn't produce that much for you. There's embarrassment and all of that that goes with it. And that keeps you from having those experiences that are are even more vital for you, right? As a reader. It's just so interesting, this part point right here. And later they talk about the Matthew effect. And another thing they're emphasizing to your point, Donnell, is wide reading. So it is it's cumulative frequency of these words you're seeing over time gives you the ability to generalize those and not just in one type of text, right? So he calls that cumulative frequency. Um, And then I think that really lends itself (laughs) to the Matthew effect. If you are not um, getting those patterns in long-term memory and the lexical quality to you is low and you're spending more cognitive resources understanding, then you won't spend time reading. Educators, families, policymakers, and our communities at large are all focused on coming together to help all children develop reading proficiency. That's why you'll want to learn more about the new Reading Horizons Discovery. It's the evidence-based foundational literacy program educators asked for and educators helped create. With innovative technology to support teachers and students, a complete collection of decodable books, a digital sound wall, real-time coaching, and more, Reading Horizons Discovery gives you everything you need to help all K-3 students become proficient readers. So, take off with a trusted Science of Reading-aligned approach. Stay on top of student progress and individual needs with a tech-enabled tool and streamlined student data. And then take action to transform reading challenges into literacy success. Go to readinghorizons.com slash product guide to download a complete program overview today. Okay, so I'm going to toss in a little question here. It might be the spanner in the works. Uh, What do you guys think about the role of listening to good, rich text if a student maybe has challenges with being able to read a text for him or herself, and it's difficult and challenging. And so having that balance between, well, then let's get them to really enjoy listening to text that's above perhaps where they are with word level reading in order to get exposure to, right? What do you think that how that influences? And again, you know, I'm just asking a wide question here, and I'm sure there's pieces of research we could pull to say specific things, but I just want in general your view of what you think of that and how you how you see it being used or utilized or not. I think it's huge. It's huge. And we have multiple texts in our classrooms for multiple purposes. We have decodable texts to practice those sound spelling correspondences. We have grade level texts. It's a little more challenging that students can grapple with. It's a little more complex for them. And we're always doing a read aloud as well. That's going to raise the roof of their listening comprehension because like just what you were describing, Donnell. And so 
for students who struggle, providing audiobooks uh, is is huge for them to help develop uh, vocabulary and those more complex concepts and themes and texts, and they're going to get with books that they can actually you know, decode. And I feel like that was a huge piece for my own son because, you know, I was, would tell his third grade teacher during silent reading time, he needs to be able to listen to text because it's not doing him any good to sit here while he's either pretending to read or he's embarrassed to read the books that he can actually read in front of his peers, give him audiobooks. And I still credit that to, you know, by the time his decoding ability caught up, he was not behind in his vocabulary. He was not behind in background knowledge. He understood, you know, the structure of different types of texts because he had been exposed to so many through the read alouds. Which is a great example of what I was thinking as you asked the question, Daniel. The mechanism behind that is that, yes, it takes some students longer to learn how to decode on that level um, that we would call approaching or at a proficient level. But by the time they get to that point, if they already have that meaning in their long, if they're spoken in oral vocabularies, that's the same word listening and speaking vocabularies, then they'll make that connection even faster. And there is a lot of research to support that too. So it's critical. We're never not attending to that vocabulary and comprehension, right? In our reading instruction. Yeah, so interesting. So I, the point I want to say right here is yes, yes, yes to all of it, because I still run into teachers who say, oh, you can't have them listening to it because then, then they won't read it. And I, I try to help them understand exactly the balance between, yes, we're still going to work on skills, but let's promote those opportunities to enrich that child's ability to hear a narrative, vocabulary use, rich vocabulary use, follow a story, right? Create those pictures in their head. Because as you say, Lindsay's pointed out with, with her reader in her own household, she noticed a huge difference in that ability to create that for the student and then be able to catch the skills up. And then you've got a student who who has already been filling that upper end, you would have had a larger gap in, in terms of that. And that was my son as well, always exposed to really rich narratives in great stories, still learning the skills, but at the same time having an opportunity to have great pictures in his head. And then once he was able to connect those, today he loves to read. He's one of my you know biggest readers still. So I I think that's a really big key piece right here. And this is a great section for it. Yeah. And as you were talking, I was just making that connection between the precision that they're talking about and the flexibility, right? Um, Because if you hear those words in all different contexts, then you already, you're building that flexibility. So the time you can be precise with that spelling of a word, um, you're ready to go with the meaning. Lindsay, you were going to add to that. Well, I was. And then I know we also have a lot to t- still talk about. <laughs> but, yeah, um, it's true. <laughs> but go ahead. We want but to yeah. That. So, and in my classroom, I do, I have a reading center. This is when I'm pulling small groups. And one of the activities is reading. All students get the opportunity to listen to audiobooks at this time. And it, this does not replace any practice reading aloud, practice applying the skills I'm teaching them in our phonics lessons. This is something added to, you know, so this is not a waste of time. It's great to have students get to listen to books. Um, do I say that's their opportunity to practice reading? No, this is different. It's a different purpose. Yeah, I love that because we don't want to 
um, forget that we need to teach them to decode and those phonics skills are critical. And they need a lot of time practicing Mm -hmm. that aloud. Yeah. And talking about um, words that are important. And remember how he said for flexibility purposes, you need to um, expose students to words in different contexts. But I thought this was um, important. Words that people experience in a range of different semantic and syntactic concepts might yield stronger orthographic representations than words that are repeated in the same context. And I don't know about you guys, but immediately I thought of those tier two words that we focus on in vocabulary. They are applicable in many different contexts. So it shows us how important um, vocabulary instruction on those specific words are. And here's a little tip now that we have AI. (laughs) chat gpt google bard you can take your vocabulary words and you can put them in and say give me a fourth grade passage that includes these words and now you have them in a new context yeah there you go i love it and then um hopefully students will get to the point where they can create their own context for those words right the next section talks about something i know that we all really have an affinity for and that's morphology so they're talking initially about how early on words that students learn are have single morphemes, but then um, the importance of understanding morphology increases when they get to words that have more than one syllable um, and more than one morpheme. And here was a fun fact I thought, fun to me because we're word nerds, but around 80% of words in the English language are built from more than one morpheme. I don't think I could have quantified that. It makes sense to me, but I don't know if I could have quantified that. That's cool. I'm glad somebody does that research. <laughs> Donnell, I know you've been doing um, some of your own deep dives into morphology. Anything in this section that um, you want to highlight? You know, I think that the oral language vocabulary was really important here, right? So acknowledging that your students have the ability to recognize morphemes and to produce morphemes. They even had a little activity here where their children are very young and they could even be pre-readers, but because they've been exposed to so much oral language. And so the nod there is, is that we are primed for this in our oral language. And then we seem to not really acknowledge to take it further in the printed right? That's, that's really interesting. Something that is comes natural to us in, in our oral language and not really making those connections to our print, which we could and should be doing. Yeah, especially because English is a morphophonemic language and mm-hmm. so many times um, that morpheme carries the meaning that otherwise students wouldn't have access to. I think it's just so interesting about our language because so many of the, you know, maybe they seem like these irregular spellings for us, but morphology can explain that spelling and helps with the meaning of the word. And in the um, article, it talks about like the word magic and then magician. The word magician keeps that spelling of magic. You have that C. Um, And I just think that is so cool. That's something so neat about our language. Love it. I thought the same thing about the word sign and signal. You're not keeping the pronunciation there, but the spelling carries the meaning. I thought it was interesting. They acknowledge that teachers, because think back to your own education. This was the section that I think of, uh, you know, all sections, maybe we can think back and say, I don't, I'm not sure how much exposure I even had to this. It's new ideas, but here particularly is lacking for most of us. Because when we can think about back to our education and say, how much of this did I receive? And now I am expected to 
teach my students something that wasn't really all that important or really specifically taught when I was young. Yeah, the wording they use is teacher knowledge of morphology is sparse and patchy. No pressure for me, no pressure at all to teach my pre-service teachers. That was sarcasm. Okay, let's um, transition to what I think is my favorite part. And Lindsay, you had this suggestion at the beginning to focus on those implications for the classroom. And the first section is titled Sight Words Revisited. What did we learn here? I like the quote. It said, teaching a sight word does not guarantee reading by sight. Yeah, and they also emphasize learning individual sight words could only ever be a drop in the ocean in terms of children's orthographic learning. It is estimated that from middle of childhood onward, children learn approximately 3,000 new words per year. That's a lot. Um, And then reading for themselves allows children to build experience with printed words. I thought that was important. Yeah, Um, and I think that's kind of the theme of this whole middle section is that students need experience with the printed words. We're always saying time and text, time and text, how much time, how many meaningful practice opportunities do the students have to apply the skills that we're teaching? We can't, you know, teach decoding in isolation. Yeah, even if it's an effortful process, right? I did underline this. Their last sentence in that section says, we argue that there is a case for judicious instruction on high-frequency, difficult-to-decode words as part of a comprehensive and phonics-rich reading instruction program. So they're talking about those high-frequency words that have irregular spellings. And then, um, Donnell, the point you brought up that teachers may not understand morphology is kind of highlighted in the second section of that. Anything else that stood out to you there? You know, I thought it was interesting they acknowledge that a lot of the information about research conducted about morphology was they got to looking at the studies. It really depended on how it was implemented, right? And they even had questions about how well it was implemented to really get to that um, understanding of how important morphology is or how it impacts overall reading. And so I thought it was interesting. It said it is also important to consider that form of intervention is being compared with the morphological instruction, reported moderate effect sizes for morphological instruction compared with regular classroom instruction, but noted that these effect sizes fall substantially substantially compared with alternative treatments mostly consisting of phonological interventions. Of course, the nature of regular classroom instruction almost certainly differs across studies, so you're already seeing how complicated it can be to pull this out. Research comparing morphological instruction with systematic phonics instruction in young children is very limited they acknowledge, that's from a 2013 study, that some reported that morphological instruction improved young children's literacy skills compared with an approach that they described as traditional phonics. However, although the phonics control condition in their study did provide systematic instruction on grapheme-phoneme relationships, it appeared to mix this instruction with rote learning of whole words and encouragement to guess words from context or picture cues, features that may not characterize effective systematic phonics programs. So again, read the research Mm -hmm. to see exactly what it is that you're learning from it, right? I thought that was really important. Yeah, because of course, like almost anything is going to show a greater effect than using the three queuing system right after you teach your phonics. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Yes. And so they did say that, Donnell, to your point, they're calling out, like there's a lot of evidence we still need but they ta- they asked the question, when should morphological instruction linked to printed words begin? And they said some researchers have argued it should be introduced at the earliest stages of learning to read. 
before alphabetic knowledge is firmly established. Which seems silly, right? But I know that person who's always advocating for that. And I like that it said, well, a lot of the beginning books have words with single morphemes. So it it doesn't really. And then it does state right after that. However, this suggestion awaits evidence. And maybe there has been evidence in the meantime, but I, I am not aware of it. I also thought it was interesting because we start very early um, when you're talking, you guys said it in spoken language. We talk about plurals with students as early as kindergarten, right? So we are addressing morphology. We're Maybe we're just not being as explicit about it. And maybe the question really is, they use the term morphological awareness, which I think we would be facilitating in that case. Yeah. But at what point do we become explicit about it? So I thought that was good. And then um, my favorite section, anything else about morphology before we move on, by the way, the very last um, section, 2.4.3 is motivating children to read. I loved this section. Mm, Me too. Um, Lindsay, you tell us what you loved most about it. Okay. Like I highlighted a lot of things in this section. Um, Okay. It's talking about that um, the desire to read is strongly linked with reading ability. And it says, children are more motivated to read and engage in it more when they are good at it. So as a teacher, my number one thing is to teach them how to read because I know that is going to maximize the motivation to read. This makes me think of, we always are asking the question, do kids have to love reading? Um, Do we have to teach them to love reading? And we, I want all of my students to love reading. But I think about one of my brothers, Lindsay, when you're talking about that, he actually was taught with the very explicit phonics program well before that was kind of the thing. It was during a whole language time, but he was lucky enough. He could read. He could. He didn't love it. But by the time he started to read, the, he decided that he loved it. He could do it. And so his motivation grew and he could access what he wanted to. So I I know that there are exceptions, but um, to your point, we need to teach them to be able to do it before they're going to love it. Don't know. And I think some of the points they made from Willingham was Daniel Willingham's book, The Reading Mind. They made some points from there, but they're also general points that I think we've heard many places before. And that is providing opportunities for students to choose what they're interested in as well, right? So this is, Lindsay, you've talked about it, mentioned it many times. We have lots of different types of texts for students to access. It's really important. And that opportunity to choose what they want to be able to read. And and adding in the opportunity to be able to listen and to access something that's at a different level so they can maybe be involved in a text that the rest of their peers are reading. That was really important to my son is to know what everyone else was talking about when there was a book that everybody was reading and make sure that you're being involved in that as well. And it's just making your access to being able to have those rich experiences with a great story or learn something from a terrific, you know, informational text, whatever it is, but making sure the access is there as we always continue to teach the skills. But as we've acknowledged all the way through, not every student will be on the same trajectory to that expert reader. And my son was delayed on that trajectory. We put in a lot of effort to get him there. But by adulthood, he did, and he's become a a tremendous reader. And I credit all of that with always along the way having choice to access a great text 
and find a way to be able to listen to it, to be involved with it. And I think that's where we kept the love burning until we were able to get the skill. Willingham says that two broad categories to um, facilitate motivation, choice, as you mentioned, but also maximizing the value of reading. Yeah. And I think also what you, the example you just gave did that as well. I know in your family, I mean, you had sentence structure things on your windows that like <laughs> oh, you're maximizing the value. <laughs> well, it's out there. It was in our last oh, episode. I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> I do. It was sticky. <laughs> yeah, it stuck with me. But that the value of reading was very evident. I think in your home, Lindsay, with your family as well. And I think in a classroom, that's equally important. Yeah. And I loved the, when they were talking about what Willingham said about this motivation to read and saying, you know, it's, it's more than just enjoying reading, but also enjoying it more than all the other options out there. And you just think like, oh my gosh, we have video games, we have social media, we have so many other things. And these kids, you know, um, you know, they talk about survey where there's 30% of teenagers were like, yeah, they like reading, but they liked other things more. <laughs> so yeah. he talks about having it available all the time, having it available as an option, have books there in view, you know, in all different situations. Yeah. Related to those distractions, um, they also share how many words per year students read according to their percentile ranking of reading proficiency. So those at the 10th percentile of time spent reading were estimated to be exposed to approximately 60,000 words per year. Those at the 50th percentile, which is considered average, right, for a grade, um, 900,000 words. And those at the 90th percentile with more than 4 million words. That by itself is staggering, especially when you talk about lexical quality over time, right? But this study, they indicate, was done before the digital era. Mm. Yeah. Boy. Yeah. It was so interesting, that part. Um, also, again, referring to Willingham in a study he did where they found that rewarding children for reading may yeah. have a negative impact yeah. on their motivation to read. What did you guys think about that? That, that goes to intrinsic motivation, right? The importance yes. of intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of a certain um, program that I've seen in schools that rewards students for reading. And I've seen it. I've seen that their motivation, if they feel competition about it, younger students especially, um, that's not why they read. You're, You're changing the why when you do those external motivations, right? It's to get the thing and not actually to get meaning and that and the value that we can out of reading. Yeah, I did a little take home because last year was my first year in first grade. So I started this take home book system. They get three books on Monday. They bring them back on Friday. They read them aloud to a caregiver at home. And I really was debating. I was like, if they bring them back on Friday, should I put a little treat in the bag? Do they get a little sticker or candy or something? And I'm like, I'm not going to. I, I knew about this and I didn't want to give them this external word for reading. We just talked a lot about, wow, your reading is going to get so much better by practicing it. And you know what? All my students returned their book bags on Fridays having read the book and they didn't need a reward to do that. I think that also uh, those external rewards contribute to the Matthew effect as well. 
And I'm thinking about my second grade teacher who I loved so much. She was a great teacher, but we had a reward system for every 10 books you read on Fridays, you got to pick a lucky sucker. Have you guys heard of these? And they were big, you guys. So let's talk about (laughs) facilitating diabetes early on in life, but they were really full of sugar. And um, if you got one that had a star on the wrapper, you got to choose another sucker. And so for every 10 books you read, you had a chance, right? And I remember some um, weeks that I literally had 10 and 15 suckers because I got lucky with the stars on the wrapper. But I do remember in my class, as early as second grade, noticing that there were students who never got any suckers. So I shared mine with them. And I didn't at the time ever think about it. But now I'm realizing because they weren't reading, they Mm -hmm. didn't get 10 books. And of course, I was intrinsically motivated to read. So for me, it was just a bonus. And, you know, I think you both said really important things about creating the value of the experience of reading. And so, Lindsay, that's what's important to your students is they've recognized it's a value to you and it's a value to your classroom. So, therefore, it is valuable. And I think that's the important thing. It can be brought to households too, right? So, my children knew that I valued it. And so, it was a value in our household that we had books and to be able to access. And so, even with a reader that wasn't having the same experience as some other readers in my household, you're trying to find ways that we could all be able to have that experience with reading. It was all considered value. And so I I really urge teachers that maybe haven't had their eye on the value of listening. Maybe that's something new for you you're thinking about, and you're going to add that into your repertoire of other really great things that you do, and just thinking of ways in which you can create that value for all of the students. And for maximizing that value with any text that you have exposure to or experience with. I'm thinking specifically about one time, we used to call these extension activities, they really do a lot to add value. But I remember one time we were reading um, back in the leveled text days in my first grade classroom. It was probably a C or a D level text about how to make peanut butter. And so these were my lower readers. It was in the later half of the year and we made peanut butter. I ruined a blender in the process, but it worked, right? And I think (laughs) students realize you take that information from the text and you can just read the book and walk on or you can apply it. And that's where you get some value out of what you're what you're reading. So always focusing on that. So I think this quote um, in here kind of perfectly sums up this part on motivation, kind of like our, our big takeaway. Children are more motivated to read and engage in it more when they are good at it. And so what can we control as teachers? We can teach them to read to make sure that they have the option to love it and do it, you know, voluntarily. That is a great way to end. Always focusing on the value of reading and providing choice in reading. Lots of experience with text, increasing that opportunity and exposure. Thank you guys. That was um, way better than I thought it would be. (laughs) This discussion has been great. Um, That's why I love having these kind of conversations with colleagues like yourselves And I love opening it up to our listeners too. So if any of you want to discuss any of these things, reach out to us and we'll, we'd be happy to. I'm thinking too, how excited I am about next time, which will be our final um, episode in this series. And it is about comprehension, which is the whole reason we read, right? So I'm really excited to dive into that. 
So that will be the um, the rest of the article. For those of you who want to read ahead, feel free to do that. And thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Literacy Talks. And we will see you in the next episode when we learn more about comprehension. Thanks for joining us today for Literacy Talks, the podcast series for literacy leaders and champions everywhere. We invite you to join the Science of Reading Collective, our free community and resource hub, so you can stay current with new ideas, free webinars, resources, and more. And be sure to visit Literacy Talks online for resources, access to every season's episodes, and more at readinghorizons.com slash literacy talks. It's an exciting time to teach reading and ensure your students reach grade level proficiency this school year. Literacy Talks comes to you from Reading Horizons, where reading momentum begins. Join us next time.